0: I'm James, and this is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Yoshua Watz. This episode was recorded on the 30th of December, 2020. For more episodes and show notes, visit jamesmunscom podcast. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Enjoy. Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. All right. How's it going? Hey. Yeah. Doing all right. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm taking some time off. I'm relaxing. I'm like, at this point, I'm accumulating more projects, which is sort of negative, but I guess it means that like the creative energy is coming back, which is nice. But right now I'm just like, I keep having crazy ideas and I just keep writing them down. And I'm like, okay, okay, put that in the journal. Maybe I'll get to that eventually, but let's just put that <laughs> on the shelf until I'm done cleaning the office. So, you know, yeah, you know yeah, how it goes. I, I get that. <laughs>
1: Anything, um, what what kind of projects do, do you have like on, on your mind?
0: Oh, man. Uh, after this, I'm going to probably hop on the stream. So, I mean, the one that's kept me busy the last couple of days is setting these calls up as a podcast so i realized the way i wanted to publish this was as audio so i got the first oh cool today is today's the 30th of december so yesterday i published the first of those interviews but now i'm doing i'm learning a bunch of like the hosting and how you set up an rss feed so i'm probably going to write a really terrible little rust cli program to generate rss feeds that work for podcasts and from like a toml file or something like that so i can Post the RSS feed on my website and then I can uh put that up on like iTunes and Spotify and stuff because I couldn't find like an easy like Python script or something out there that just did that. There was a bunch of like service websites that will do that for you, but I couldn't find one that was like, <laughs> here's the list of files, make me an RSS feed. So I'm probably gonna do a terrible job of generating XML using print statements. Yeah. And after that, I'm probably gonna design design a circuit board. So I've been like, I found that. Software still has me like a little, it's too close to work stuff. So like, I still have like a little bit (laughs) of like wrap up from that, but designing circuit boards is close enough that it still gets me excited about the stuff I'm normally excited about. But uh, my professional job is not designing circuit boards. So I find it like super relaxing and like a puzzle. So uh, I'll probably do some of that on the stream afterwards. How about you? What have you been, what have you been working on? Ooh, ooh,
1: ooh, before you go there, like you, you, you know, there's a RSS like um, package on Creteo that does like a decent job at like generating RSS stuff.
0: Ooh, that's good to know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was was looking at it because I use uh, Zola for my blog Mm -hmm. and they do automatic RSS generation. I was like, huh? How are you doing that? And like, they're using this one crate.
0: And I was like, oh, that's nice. That's good to know. That's awesome because I'm using Zola right now. But the problem is I don't think, well, I think right now, probably my RSS feed is just taking my blogs and the podcast episodes and putting them in the same RSS feed, which is not going to work from any of the like, feed generators. Yeah, So yeah, yeah. I'm probably going to make a separate one just for the podcast. And I'll probably make three different ones because I'm publishing MP3s, M4As and FLAC. So I probably oh. will need three different RSS feeds for that, I assume. But yeah, that's awesome because I'll just use that if that has a thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that, that sounds a bit more robust than print line
0: statements, you know. <laughs> that's true. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't planning on this being like a usable for everyone kind of thing. But I think if I can make it more usable for everyone, then I'm I'm happy to. And probably, like you said, it's going to be more robust than <laughs> printing, <laughs> printing, doing code gen on XML. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: especially when you're like, oh, no, I don't want to be doing this. It's work. Please make it stop. <laughs> yeah,
0: pretty much. It's never. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I'll go look because I'm using Zola for my blog, both for the podcast feed and the regular blog article one. So nice. that's awesome.
1: But yeah, let, let me answer your question. You asked me like, "Hey, Josh, what, what are you excited about?" And the answer is, uh, right, very much right now at this very moment, it's Const generics so and rust. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you caught my
0: tweets uh, over the last 24 hours. I saw the one like just a couple minutes ago where you, where you submitted some diagnostics past- patches. Yes.
1: So that was because uh well it's not it's not a patch, it's just the issue. Oh, you're right, it's an issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah, 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 I wish I could have just
1: written the patch, but you know.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> but um yeah, I've been playing with const generics. Um so it's it's getting stabilized in Rust 1.51, which like it was merged a couple of days ago, I believe, and everyone's super excited about it. So I was like, all right, fine, I'll go and like implement this one idea that I had to do. Um and basically um Again, like th- this month has been like sort of hectic because advent of code, like lots of stuff stabilized. And I've like been learning about databases. So I'm like sort of in the world right now. But um, during advent of code, there was this one problem that was like, do a thing and essentially algorithm to solve it was like K combinations
0: Okay. Um,
1: yeah. where you, yeah, I, I, it, it's a common thing. I didn't know what K combinations were. I just looked at it. I was like, oh, that's the algorithm I need to do. So it was like multiple layers of nested for loops. And a friend of mine was like, oh, no, I just Googled like K combinations Rust and like iter tools popped up. And like there was this one thing. And I was like, oh, sweet. That's amazing. But the iter tools version uh, was doing tons of allocations. So every single output of K combinations was returning a vec. Mm. So I was like, wait, hold on, hold on. We now have const generics, which means we can do precise length arrays, which means we can just by defining like the output, it can like infer the correct like, er- is arity? I don't know if, if it's arity, but yeah. like the end. The length of the array, yeah. There we go, that one. Just by like defining it like that, I think we can make this, this work. And like, it's been stuck in my head for like a month of like wanting to try this. And then hmm. with the stabilization the fifty-one yesterday I was like, okay, we're gonna try this. And I got it 50% working. I posted on Twitter. I was like, can please someone finish this? And uh, Jakub. Um, who's a pal? Was like, oh wait, hold on, I want to try this, and so I woke up this morning to a functioning version of the thing, and now we have a generic version. <laughs> yeah, it's <was> great. <laughs> That's awesome. So now, yeah, it it it's so nice. I, I wish I could like, if we had like you know uh, text here, I could like just show it to you, but yeah, mm. it's yeah, it's,
0: it's so good. I've started messing around with it, so I I basically stopped following it a while ago, like or trying to learn how the design was going. But now that they have the RFC merged and they have the the stabilized impl merged, I actually went through and I thought it was gonna be a whole thing to update BBQ to use const generics, but I was already using oh. the generic array crate and it was basically just a find and replace of anywhere where I used that, changing a couple syntax pieces. I still need to like go in and refactor it a little bit because right now I have, There's like the main data structure, which is the BB buffer, which is like the data structure that holds the data. But uh, as an implementation right now, because I wanted it to be statically initializable, I did Mm -hmm. kind of gross, maybe on init hacks where there's like a const version of the structure. (laughs) And then there's a non-const version of the structure. And like the non-const version contains the const version, but like it makes the syntax really gross. And it means I have a bunch of like duplicated impuls and stuff like that, just so I could get Because there was a problem before where you couldn't have trait bounds on a const method. Um, And because I needed Mm -hmm. the trait bounds for the generic array stuff, I couldn't do that. So what I ended up having to do was having like a uh, is an ugly hack. Um, And we use it a couple of times in the embedded space like heapless, which is another like uh, data structure crate uses the same thing so that you can have like statically initializable data structures. But basically, I just get to remove the hacks now because now just the whole structure can work the way it was originally supposed to work, where it's just generic over the the length of the buffer that you're giving it. So I'm actually like I, I did the first like naive pass where I just got rid of generic array and did like a one to one change over to const generics, but now I can actually go in. The next step is to do like a refactoring where I get to rip out all the hacky bits because they're no longer necessary. And it's going to drop like it's going to drop the amount of code in that crate by like 25% or something like that. Cause most of it is just (laughs) like hacks and things like that in order to be able to statically initialize this, this data structure. So I'm super excited about it. It means two out two years after writing BBQ, I'm planning on releasing the 1.0 version of it. Cause like the plan was always, okay, this is gonna go 1.0 once I have const generics. Cause like that's the API that I actually want for this library.
1: Nice. Yeah, I really like that in Rust where it's like, you know, we we sort of get a sense of like what will be possible at some point in the future. Like whether it be like const generics or stuff in the embedded space or what the work I do in like uh, futures, right? And we sort of built this one thing. And then as language features get added, we get to remove more and more hacks up until like sort of the same design kind of sticks. But it's just a very nice version of it. Yeah, that's been I, super yeah.
0: The successive approximations of of the actual <laughs> yeah. world we want to be in. I also saw that you've been doing some PID control stuff. So it's interesting because in some of my previous conversations, actually for more like classical control theory stuff, like controlling heaters and things like that. I've had a couple people talk about PID loops, which makes sense to me in those areas. But when you started showing that you were using PID loops to do things, I think it was like congestion, like uh, traffic congestion oh, yeah. and things like that. I'm super excited to hear your experience <laughs> with PID loops and how you're using them in like a non-control theory. I guess it's still control theory, but I, I guess I had never thought of like software flow control as like a control theory kind of application. So I'm super excited to hear like what your experience was with that and how you decided to use PID loops and what you learned from like <sighs> the mathematical side of things while you were implementing it.
1: Oh, you're asking a lot of questions. Like they're, they're very big questions. Um, so let, 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 me backtrack just for a sec. So I, I built this thing out of curiosity. I have no practical use case for this. It's not a proper, it's just like, a. I I made a patch and I was like, look, this thing can work. So I, I don't have an actual use case for it. I just know that this is the right way to do things. Um, th- this work is kind of based on some of the work that AWS is doing internally, uh, which people are talking about externally, um, specifically, uh, a dude named Colm. I forget his last name, I believe he's Irish probably, but he he has these like really good talks about like control theory and like applying it to cues and like closing loops and all these things. And I I saw that and it seemed like fascinating. And I was like, Oh my God. And like the, the one slogan he has like control theory where the fruit is solo that it's touching the ground. Um, and like talking about like web services and like these kinds of things. And I was like, okay, well I have to give this a shot. So, um the thing that I built was just, like again just for fun but essentially like a a load shedder um so you have like a variety of like uh, they're not called load balancing what's the thing where you uh, do congestion control the oh, can't think oh, of no. a word doesn't matter
0: It's like flow controllers or something like that
1: right rate limiting is the
0: word I was looking right for rate limiters there you go
1: yeah so like um a load shedder is a kind of rate limiter that doesn't just constrain like per user, the kind of load. But in this case, it's like, well, you know, if we're starting to hit like a thousand requests a second on the service, uh, what we need to start doing is like, start saying this thing's unavailable because we know it's about to crash, you mm. know? So instead of crashing, you just start like dropping load and then telling people like, please back off with like a, a back off timer. HTTP has like a retry after header that specifies in seconds how long you should wait for. So yeah, I just made a middleware that was like, well, you give it an input number, like say you can handle a hundred requests uh, per second or hundred requests in parallel. If we exceed that, then we using a pit controller, we start like dropping load and telling people to please retry again later. And yeah, I know <laughs> it sounds like very straightforward, but like all these kinds of things about like just learning more about queues and like applying more sort of like the backoff algorithms, the retry stuff. I, I think there's a lot of stuff there to be done. And I don't know. So, I, yeah, I actually like let, let, let me turn ah, 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 words, 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 <laughs> because it, so, it sounds like you've done like tons with like pit controllers and whatnot. Not, uh, I mean, like I
0: have, I have like a vague understanding of them. Like, uh, I think I got introduced to them in engineering university and I've seen them used in practice. So like the classical application for them is for like heating. Normally if you, if you were heating up a big pool of water, like the, there's like a couple ways to approach this. And normally if you were to just have like the totally simple application of like, okay, if my I'm aiming for, let's say 60 degree water and my water starts at 20 degrees. Like the simplest way would just say, like, if I'm less than 60 degrees, turn the heater on. And if I'm more than 60 degrees, turn the heater off. And like that sort of works. But what you're going to have is you're going to have a lot of overshoot and stuff like that. Or you're going to have like, you know, you'll be there's a lot of like inertia and mass to your system. So like if your heating elements are really hot and then. Just because you like cross the sixty degree threshold, you'll turn them off, but there's still enough heat. Like if you think about like heating something up on your stove, like even if you turn the power to zero, there's still like momentum in the system where it will keep going maybe up to sixty five or seventy degrees. And if you're in a yeah an industrial setting, you that may like ruin your product. Like if you were like trying to get <laughs> something to a specific application or a specific level for some chemical process or something like that if you blow over the heat that much, you might like literally ruin your your process. <laughs> and then yeah. as you're trying to like keep the stuff at 60 degrees, like if you then got to like a steady state where you're sort of at 60 degrees, if you were only doing that and there was some amount of lag time where turning your heater on takes a while to heat the heater up and then heat the system back up, You could end up swinging from like positive 70 or from 70 to 50 to 70 to 50. And you end up getting these oscillations, which are like one sort of inefficient because you're wasting energy, like over reheating it. And then you're also like missing your target. So PID controllers are one technique of dealing with that. So like PID is what, like proportional integral uh, derivative controllers. Yes, yes. And a lot of times people don't use all three of those, but those are basically three pieces of data that you can use as a closed feedback loop to your system where Hmm. you're, especially with like tuning it certain amounts, you can try and get it so that the system is smart enough that maybe like as it's heating up, when it hits 65 degrees, it turns the heater off because it knows it's going to keep coasting up to 70. And then once it starts dropping down to like 69 degrees, it'll maybe click the heater on because it knows that it, it can do that. And like, each of the different parts, like the proportional, the integral, and the derivative help you either... uh, So when you're trying to control the system, you have what's called underdamped systems, overdamped systems, and critically damped systems. And the idea is that you... Like, one is trending to overshoot, trending to undershoot, or you're doing a pretty good job of hitting your target. And like, Mm. the goal is always to hit a critically damped system because then you're not oscillating really widely in your temperatures and things like that. And it totally makes sense how you can... uh, I mean, this is one of those things that like even in engineering is really interesting because you see the same formulas and stuff applying to a bunch of different areas. Because if you look at like the mathematical formulas for like resistors and capacitors and stuff like that, they follow Mm. almost exactly the same formulas as like a spring, for example, where they have like the same amounts of resonance and things like that. So you use the same kind of control theory algorithms on like RLC or resistor inductor capacitor circuits as you would on like a a mass damper system. So whether you're controlling, like you can use the same control algorithms, whether you're using like the, think of like the shock absorbers in a car. Like that's also a system that you're, you're damping. Or if you have like a, an electrical circuit that's preventing oscillations on the voltage of a bus, or if you're in like a factory and you're controlling heating of like a big pool of water, you're going to run into almost these same equations, no matter what application you're in. Which is why you see these like things like PID loops applied all over the place, and it totally makes sense that you'd see the same thing in software because you're essentially modeling those kinds of systems where you have like certain queue depths and certain pressure basically on the requests that you're taking, and that yeah. can exert itself on your on your software system the same as it can on a mo- mechanical or electrical or thermodynamic system.
1: That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I guess it's like um sort of cross-pollination of this stuff between like fields is fascinating.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's huh. it's interesting to see I'm I'm always excited when I see software developers starting to think of their systems in a more like classical engineering kind of way. And exactly like you're saying, like figuring out what we can learn from other disciplines and apply them to software because I think kind of like you the the person at AWS that you were talking about the like the low hanging fruit is on the ground because there's so much of this like <laughs> control theory stuff that, especially in embedded, you end up using, but until you start like cross pollinating that up with server engineers, you know, there's always a couple techniques that you use, like back off, like exponential back off is usually the one that I right. see for like flow control and things like that. But that's, that's usually a pretty heavy hammer. And it's in It's what we would call open loop control because it it takes very little or it takes no feedback from like the actual other states of the system. I guess maybe it has some control in that it like it knows whether the immediate request has passed or failed or something like that. But something like a PID controller might be able to give you a much more fine grained analysis where instead of just like expanding the back off until it works and then crushing that back down to like no back off, you can like kind of tune it and let it oscillate a little bit to try and find a number that makes sense for either the individual client or the individual server that you're load balancing against.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's also like fascinating once you, I don't know, like very specifically about like software, it's like once you start like adding more parameters into it where you're like, okay, cool. So we have a bit controller and the back off is in place. Now, what if we start talking about fairness? Like mm. maybe we want to ensure that sort of all the requests end up progressing. But if you like zoom out and are like, okay, over multiple servers, like how does this ensure, like at what point do we spin up more servers? How do we ensure that, you know, none of the clients get dropped? They just get slower, but the the mm-hmm. whole thing still progresses. I don't know there, there's so much like interesting things to tease apart here. And I, I think like, you know, all these like algorithms, like all the way down that can be applied. I don't know I, 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 I find that. Uh, at least in like server work, there's like not a lot of talk about like applying these classical engineering things. The closest mm-hmm. I've seen is people talk about like circuit breakers or whatever, but those mm-hmm. seem a little bit awkward at times. I don't know. I, I find this fascinating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess is what I, I'm trying to say.
0: I definitely didn't do a lot of control stuff. Like I, I admit my my math background on controls is a little weak, but I've I've worked with a lot of engineers who feel very strongly about that. And yeah, one of the one of the favorite people that I've worked with is a guy named Nenet and he was a mechatronics engineer. So like he had a very like mechanical electrical background. So he did a lot more controls theory stuff. And that was his big thing of like, everything you do needs to be a closed loop control system of of like (laughs) taking feedback and applying it and and like using that to like tune the output because otherwise you're just like wasting all of this capability that you have because you're essentially like you're building state machines that totally ignore the state that they're actually in right now and like not just like the immediate things that they understand but like higher level concepts like you know when you use pin controllers you have essentially three levels. You've got the proportional, which is like, what is it? Position, velocity, and acceleration. Those are three integral differences from each other where like your position is one order and then you integrate that once and you, or you take the derivative of that and you get velocity and you take the derivative of that again and you get acceleration. And that gives you like a way better understanding. And that's Mm. exactly why you use PID controllers because it takes not just like where you are right now, which is maybe like your total throughput, but the or like the number of requests you have served, I guess, and then your velocity is essentially how many requests per second that you're working on. And your acceleration is basically how many what is the change in the request per second? So you can see if like your server is accelerating the number of requests that it's it's working on or if it's decelerating because you know that if it's decelerating, you probably have more capacity just because you know that the like the speed is starting to slow down and things like that. So it's yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. interesting to see like that, even just that little bit of calculus being applied in, into a software context.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hey, I want to ask you, how's uh, a macro coming along, if at all?
0: Not at all. Oh, I mean, like I'm playing with hardware stuff, but um. Oh, right, right. in the lead up to the Rust Fest talk that I gave, so like I like burned super hard to get that demo ready. And then, <laughs> yeah. then, like, it had the negative effect of just, like, now I don't want to touch that code base because it was too stressful. So, like, I've been giving it some cool-out time, and what I've been working on is, is designing circuit boards and stuff for it now. So, like, I'm sort Ooh. of staying close to the idea and keeping thinking about it, but, like, I haven't been able to bring myself to write the code because I have that, like, weird little knot in my stomach that you get from, like, way over-pushing to deadlines where, like, the code no longer yeah. brings joy because, like, the last... I was in that code was a very stressful context of getting ready for a hard deadline demo and things like that. So like what I've been doing instead is like designing circuit boards and and stuff like that, where what was like really well, I have the I know this is going to be an audio podcast, which means no one's going to see what I'm holding up right now. (laughs) I have
1: I I can narrate the visuals.
0: Yeah, I've got like a it's uh, a it's
1: a green chip on the screen.
0: Yeah, Uh so I have a circuit board that actually has like all of the components for one of my Anacro cards on it, which this is like Mm. the very fancy one. And then I'm gonna show Yosh the original little hand-built one, which is just on like a little breakout circuit board with like some manually soldered wires (laughs) on the back of it. So like, this is what I used for the demo. And I basically redesigned it to have like everything that's on that hand-soldered one and also like some LEDs and stuff like that. So it has status output and room for like a flash memory chip and stuff like that. So, Yo. like I said, I was, I was recovering from my sort of software project burnout with, you know, staying in the project to keep my head in the project, but switching over to hardware design, cause it's enough of a context switch for me that I don't feel that same level of stress, but mm-hmm. it keeps me close to the project, but I'm starting to get back close to that. Cause there's a couple other things that I want to use at least the, in out an acro network protocol on that i want to do is hobby project. so i think probably in the next week or two i'll probably get back into it and probably start streaming working on it i think the first thing is probably going to be like all right what hacks did i put in there at least triaging (laughs) the hacks that i put in there to make it to the demo and like the system really worked for the demo but like there was a lot of like only handling happy path and like instead of like appropriately handling errors it's like huh, let's ignore that and hope that it doesn't crash the demo. Like, you know, those kinds of like, it handles the happy path and then just quietly keeps working on the on the error path. And like, at least the nice thing with Rust is, is the refactoring path is pretty straightforward. So like, I did make all of my functions return results, but right now they just like mm. bubble the errors up and at the top <laughs> level it goes, oh, that's interesting right. and keeps moving. <laughs> like where now I need to like, right. I have all of these places where I'm supposed to handle errors, but now I need to at least start like, trickling down and actually gracefully recovering from errors or not gracefully recovering from errors and like telling the difference between oh this should be a critical fault versus oh yeah this is just part of operation and and deal with it gracefully
1: that makes sense but by the way i find it so fascinating um that you just pull out like here's my breadboard prototype and, like here's this super fancy looking chip like wow you know, like in in my mind, I th- I think it wasn't like until I saw your Anacor talk that it sort of started to click that the way you prototype like any sort of hardware is using breadboards. Like I never made that connection for whatever reason, and I don't know. I, like the the process of like designing your own hardware seems fascinating, and now that you're just showing these two things, I'm like, huh, that seems that seems reasonably approachable. Like
0: yeah, I could do that. I definitely, I I definitely think it's it's gotten way more approachable, especially in the last couple of years. But uh, yeah, the nice thing is today, there's, there's a huge amount of like modules and stuff like that from available from different companies that allow you to start using it a lot like software interfaces where you just have Mm. like modules that speak certain protocols and then getting them to talk together is, is often just wiring them together and knowing how to wire them together, which is usually, especially if you're buying relatively recent components, they're, they're probably going to be fairly compatible. And then so, so it's very like my systems engineering hat is very like, you know, <laughs> you've got blocks on the diagram, and you draw little wires in between them, and like, That's usually how I think of like, okay, I'm going to need something that does this, something that does this, and something that does this. You start with kind of those blocks on the block diagram. Then you figure out, okay, well, this speaks this protocol and this speaks this protocol. And I have to wire them together like this. And yeah, so I mean, like the first step is usually getting a couple of these modules and either wiring them together on a breadboard, like you said, or just using wires and connecting or soldering them together until like you Mm. you have them talking. And then the second thing that I use is this perf board which is a little bit more permanent. So like a breadboard, you usually like, it doesn't require soldering. You just like put the wires in there back. and they connect. And then this is what I would call like a proto board uh-uh. where it, you can solder to it. So it's a little bit more permanent. You don't have to worry about the wires coming loose most of the time, but you can also see with like the ugly rat's nest that's on the back of this board. It's <laughs> like, not necessary. Like it's sort of time consuming to wire it together and you have to make sure you wire it together. And the next Phase is usually making a circuit board. The open source tools for doing this have gotten way better. So, like I nice. use a tool called KICAT or KiCat or KiCat, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's a schematic entry and layout program. So you you do the same thing. You draw your blocks on the diagram and you wire the lines together that need to be wired together. And then you design your circuit board. And there's all kinds of like lower, relatively low cost websites where now you can actually like that green board that I showed you. I didn't yeah. do any of the soldering on that. Like I just picked the parts out online. I designed the circuit board in my program and then I sent it off. And like two weeks later, they sent me a totally <laughs> assembled circuit board for like 60 euros. And they sent me like 10 of the circuit board fully assembled for 60 euros. And like the oh, ability wow. to do this- so, six, it, it,
1: six, six euros a board?
0: Something like that, yeah. Oh, wow. It's And that's with like just assembly too. Like they actually put components on the board. They like They do all the soldering for me or almost all of the soldering for me. So I can use like really tiny, cheap components that I don't have the dexterity to solder on. Yeah, It's it's getting really cool on how accessible it's kind of like I was amazed, like probably 15 years ago when you get something like AWS, where you have like managed services and things like that. And it gets to the point where you no longer have to be a company that's setting up their whole server rack and you have to know networking and you have to know, um, you know, like managing all this hardware and and one developer like one of the really powerful things about software i've seen in the last year is you can build an entire website that scales to millions of users as one person like you can do a little bit of design you can do a little bit of back end you can like use aws or whatever to to build stuff and like as a single developer you can do all of this from your bedroom where manufacturing and electrical stuff has been uh, to a certain scale for sure but manufacturing electrical has always been like a much more complicated process where like usually you have to work with some partner and you have to do this and you have to like but it's getting to the point especially with open source tools and like osh park i feel like was one of the first people that did like circuit boards where you didn't have to buy a hundred of them you could buy three of them and they would charge you not like because before you could get (laughs) three of them but they would charge you the same prices if you were getting a hundred of them right and like Oshpark, I feel like was one of the first ones that they were smart enough that they go, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to get all the hobbyists and these big circuit boards come on these big panels. And what they used to do is just like copy your circuit board a hundred times. And that's why it costs the same amount for one versus a hundred. But then they got like these manufacturers who were getting smart where they said, okay, we'll take all the hobbyist projects. Right. We'll wait until we have one panel's worth of hobbyist projects. And then we'll just make that. So like we might have three of them here and five of them here and 10 of them here and three of them here. And like they would do, you know, the box packing algorithm to figure out yeah, how yeah, you could yeah, fit yeah. as many of them as possible on one board. And they just said, OK, cool. And then it'll take a little bit longer. Like instead of building it and then sending it to you, it might be a week or two before we send it to you because we have to wait until it fits into this panel. Yes. But now like so many hobbyists are using it where there's not that latency anymore. Like they're they're cracking out these multiple of these panels every day. So it's just super cheap and super quick turnaround. So like, it's been amazing to get back into hardware development because you can just do everything now.
1: That's so cool. Yeah, I I remember like hearing, but this was like years ago, like, ha, software is like fast to build, but like hardware is super expensive because mistakes are permanent. But like, sounds like that just isn't true anymore, at least for circuit boards.
0: I mean, it is, it is and it isn't. The prototyping and rapid development in hardware is getting much faster if you're still yeah. talking about like building an entire piece of hardware to ship as a product that's still relatively challenging because you have things like hardware certification you have things like logistics right like this is one of those things that people usually underestimate if they're i see i've consulted with a lot of companies that are <laughs> software companies that have started doing hardware stuff and they're like i'll just build it it's easy and i'm like yeah like the actual circuit design in the software isn't what kills you it's like the logistics and support. Like okay, how do you handle ordering 10,000 units from China and getting them in Europe and then having a warehouse that holds them? And when you're selling individual units, how do you sell them? And then if you have returns, right. how do you handle returns? And how do you get the printed manual inside the box with the circuit board and everything? Like, there's just a bunch of little yeah. stuff that it's in this logistics chain, but it's getting better for sure.
1: But like it, it sounds like the latter part, at least to some degree, has like some overlap with like more traditional, like say, a clothing store shares yeah. a lot of the same problems, right? Like yeah. it, it stops being like very specific to hardware manu- manufacturing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it sounds. I find that fascinating. Where it's like, well, this the special the special part is sort of being taken away. It's now a matter of like getting the goods in, storing the goods, selling the goods and less about the, like making sure you have a prefab machine available somewhere. Yeah. That's
0: the, that's the fun part where like the hobbyist scene, like people just buying boards and sending them to each other and stuff like that. That's gotten real cool in the last couple of years, because if you're not worrying about like full retail units and full, like customer support and stuff like that, like, especially like open source hardware projects have gotten to the point where now it's reasonable, like it'd be reasonable for me to buy a hundred boards, which now only costs maybe like, you know, two, 300 bucks. And if I can then sell them like as singles as like a hobby, then it's actually sort of reasonable to do that. But like, that's the big advantage of, I feel like software over any other field is logistics and distribution (laughs) because like yeah, getting web hosting that'll do a terabyte a month is what like, I set up the podcast hosting with a terabyte of bandwidth per month for five bucks a month. And just like, I can, I can ship a podcast at a reasonable scale for five bucks a month, but like doing the same thing for hardware is more challenging.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine fighting a bigger uh, warehouse. Isn't a matter of like pressing a button. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Yeah. I'm supposed to like, get a, uh, risk five chip in my mailbox at some point in the near future.
0: Oh, did you get one of those? Literally things what things you said.
1: Uh, maybe I. Okay. I'm pretty sure either you or Jonas retweeted something, and I replied to it. and Then it they like reached Bluetooth out.
0: Bluetooth and Wi-Fi chip. Yes. Yeah. Then that's the BL602.
1: Like that seems so cool. I was like, oh my god, risk five and like proper connectivity for like all the things. Like that yeah. sounds like something really fun to play with.
0: Yeah, I'm super looking forward to that. I think I requested one, but I think I requested one of the Ferris office, which means it'll uh... be a while before I get it. So. I'm just kind of like passively watching people on Matrix starting to use it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, this is one of the few things where I'm just like, I'll let someone else handle that and I'm going to really enjoy playing with whatever they build. But I've got <laughs> probably a year ago, I would have been like, yeah, I'm going to do that too. But now I'm like, okay, Q's kind of like, I need yeah. a little bit of congestion back off on my to-do list.
1: Completely understandable. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: Go take care of yourself
1: someone...
0: as well. Yeah, for sure. I saw someone else doing some risk 5 stuff and I'm like, "Ooh, I want to get into that because I like I'm really excited about risk 5. I think it's going to be a super super cool thing for the for the hardware industry. I just haven't like had a need or had a project where I've had to dive into it, so I've mostly been like watching from afar either on like Twitter or on Matrix and stuff like that, watching other people do really cool mm-hmm. stuff, but getting into that is definitely on my eventually list.
1: Yeah, I, I found out through Jonas that the whole risk 5 specification is like it's just published. Like there's the base spec. And then there's like, well, you know, uh, we wanted a uh, SIMD instructions. Yep. So here's a PDF that describes everything about it. And that's a specification. It's like fairly readable even. And just the the way they go through it, where it almost feels like they're writing RFCs and then they have a specification and then that pops out and now there's a thing. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. For like a, a instruction set thing, yep. I, I usually consider that like to be like, you know, outside of the scope of the work that I, like you have to specialize to get into that. But now it's becoming way more accessible. So I don't know. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, it's super
0: cool. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically just like DLC for, for a processor. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like you can buy the ones that you want. And that's really cool for a lot of manufacturers because right now, like you usually have to pick between like small, medium, large, extra large, and you get yeah, yeah, yeah. typically a lot of features that you don't necessarily need. And if you're like only making 10,000 units, then yeah, you you probably don't want to pay for specialization and things like that. But the nice thing about these different like architectures, is you can save a lot of like cost or CPU space or power efficiency and stuff like that by just only getting the parts that you need. Like if you're doing just a DSP processor, you could d- have all of the DSP extensions and things like that. And I think. The eventual plan is to have like much more heterogeneous CPU systems where you can have like, okay, I've got two cores that are really good at signal processing and two cores that are really low power and two cores that are really good with sensors and two cores that are really good at this so that yeah. you can have like this, you know, specialized environment that that you can run on a, on a chip or I, it's been really interesting to see. I'm a little worried as a software developer because already like. <laughs> I mean, atomics are not required. So I mean, like already in embedded, I have to like, there's a couple like BBQ, for example, is a lock free data structure. But the way it achieves that is through atomic operations. Like it has atomic variables that it uses, which means if you're on a platform that doesn't support them, you basically need critical sections. So like you need to basically, you need a mutex that prevents any other thread basically from preempting you. Because like mm-hmm. there's no operating system with multiple threads here, so the only thing that yeah. can preempt you are interrupts. Right, so right, I've right. had to make like special support for <laughs> CPUs that don't have atomics, and like I'm a little worried now what's gonna happen with Risk Five. But I think it's kind of like hopefully atomics become like the they're they're already in the like recommended minimal subset that I've seen yeah. most people using. So. We'll see, but I, I feel like this is the kind of thing that you know having
1: like software polyfills is a really good thing for because the, the stuff about critical section that you're like describing, I would assume there is a way to have software like detect like, oh, you're using atomics for a platform that doesn't guarantee them. Let me just like you know generate like the right critical section stuff for you. Um, but then if you know that you're targeting a CPU that does support atomics, you know, you drop the polyfill, the runtime detection goes away. It just always targets that. And now it's just, you know, perfect performance.
0: You can. um, Right now, so yeah, critical or um, atomics are one of those challenging things that are hard to polyfill because you could get them wrong. So like generating the critical (laughs) section, yeah, generating the critical section could be interesting. Right now, what we do is like at least Rust enforces that you don't accidentally do it wrong because we have different target specifications. So if you right. try and use atomic integers when you don't have atomic integers, it just won't compile, which is, which is oh, nice, uh. things like that. But yeah, definitely, I mean, that's already how things work for things like floating point support, for example, where the compiler right. will already polyfill a soft float implementation. And it might be a thousand mm-hmm. times slower, but <laughs> yeah. your code will still execute. And if you don't do them very often, that's cool. But yeah, it's, it's yes. interesting. I'd say like atomics are the one that is really hard to polyfill, but yeah, <laughs> I definitely agree in the general case. Like most of these capabilities could be done like DSP extensions or, or SIMD extensions. Like you can always do a for loop version of what your hardware would be doing for you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Like
1: I, I saw reports like with the, <laughs> I guess we're getting into chips now. Um, like, yeah, but the the Apple stuff like being as fast as it is compared to like all these like big name hardware vendors, mm-hmm. I find really interesting. Um, because then then I saw someone like a report that was like, well, listen, ARM's fast, but like it doesn't have the modular thing of like uh, Risk Five. Um, because Risk Five is modular, um, we can drop like a lot of the features of ARM, make like special purpose chips that are like a bit more, you know, targeted. And then you end up getting even more performance per watt or whatever the metric was that they used like a thousand times faster in ARM even for like specific like benchmarks. But that seemed important. I don't know. I, I find it fascinating.
0: Arm, Arm is a really cool or excuse me, uh, like the M1 chips are a really cool experience in vertical integration, really, like because mm. that's been one of the things that's been holding a lot of laptop systems and things like that back is that they're to be the most like composable that they can be. They have like very strong interfaces. And so you have like strong separation between components and things like that, which is nice for like composability, essentially, but you leave some performance on the table because you have like the most modular hardware system that you can imagine. Like your, (laughs) your RAM doesn't talk. Well, I mean, now it does, there's things like DMA, but like it doesn't tightly integrate with, for example, your, your hard drive controller, for example, like they have some ability to do things like DMA, which allow you to offload some things like that. But they, when you have a totally like vertically integrated system, like the M1 processor, you get some really cool capabilities because instead of having to like worry about for example swap memory right now your operating system manages swap memory when like it notices things that are hot or cold or whatever and things like that and i from one yeah, of the yeah. things that i've seen is one oh. of the really cool performance things on the m1 processor is it's like the flash memory interface is much more tightly integrated with the ram memory interface which is how like even on systems that only have eight gigs of ram because you have relatively fast flash memory like mm-hmm it can feel like you have a lot more RAM because it's smarter about paging things into and out of like your hard drive basically. So like from a a usage perspective, you don't even notice that you have less RAM than you might think. And also when the operating system can know exactly how the RAM and the flash are going to work with each other, you can have like operating system level support that leverages this because it's not like it's supporting 10,000 different combinations of hardware. There's like five. And it knows exactly how to behave with each of those five chunks of hardware. And on one hand, that's super cool. On the other hand, I don't know if anyone could do that quite as seamlessly as Apple without (laughs) saying like, okay, well, we have special support for each of these things. But definitely with the ability to like mess more with this, like the reason that Apple is able to do this, one, because they've got like silicon design engineers in-house that know how to do all of these tricks. And they have like X (laughs) AMD and X Intel and X NVIDIA people there who are like, pulling out all the stops of like what could you do if you owned the entire stack um, <laughs> yeah. but also like because they're big enough the way arm generally works is you can get access to all the hardware ip so like basically the source code for the hardware yeah yeah. yeah. if you're big enough to license the designs and things like that and you have enough leverages at, as a manufacturer they'll be like no show me the source code for that flash controller or show me the the source code for that ram controller and you can make the tweaks that you want which really only works commercially if you're at the scale of apple or maybe like intel or western digital or something like that someone who's big enough to have the you know the yeah, leverage yeah, yeah. but risk 5 sort of unlocks that because a lot of this stuff is done much more in the open so like you have the chances to do this kind of integration yourself at a much smaller scale which is what i think is going to be really really interesting cuz it you can have smaller vertical integration, if that makes sense, where like when I'm making a microcontroller, I can do vertical integration for all of the stuff that I'm doing. And it still is reasonable for me to like go out and manufacture only only a 100,000 of these chips instead of like 10 million chips, which might be the, the old mm. minimum or something like that.
1: Yeah, I still like have a dream of like having a, like an ebook reader or something, like a big sheet of uh, e-ink display
0: mm-hmm.
1: with like a huge battery. It just lasts like, you know, every six months you charge that thing. you use it every day. And I, I have a feeling that like, you know, risk five, may be the best way to get there currently, the most promising.
0: It could be. Yeah, I, a lot of that stuff, especially battery life, comes down to like, like I said, like total system integration of like understanding all the parts. But I should definitely show you, there's this guy I follow on Twitter who's making, I think it's called the Open Book Project. Oh. And what it is, is it's basically kind of like a hobbyist, Implementate, reimplementation of a Kindle. But the really cool thing about it is on the circuit board. So like there's a circuit board and then there's an e-paper display on the front, but on mm. the back it has all the components, but he's actually taken care to like put a box around each chunk of components, like a subsystem. And he explains how every one of them works. So like the battery mm. controller, or like the button controller or the uh, <laughs> USB port. Like he actually uh, printed on the circuit board has like a learning guide of how each of these components work and, and how they fit together. And that's the nice good. thing about it being open hardware is you could go buy a giant like book size battery and you could get your six month battery life on that. Right. And I think I think that's written in Circuit Python, So like it actually uses Python on the microcontroller. So like if you wanted to mess with it and change it, you could change it on the microcontroller. Uh, I think that's ARM based, but I should definitely show you that. I think it's called the open book project.
1: Just conceptually, that's like so cool. Like I, yeah. I have like so many like random microcontroller devices lying around, like from uh, I have a little stream deck thing that's USB connected. I have my hmm. mouse here. There's a controller in here for sure. Like, I don't know, but just, yeah,
0: yeah. Sorry, my, my brain's like, ooh, hardware. Yeah. <laughs> that's me every day yeah oh the 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 project is called the open book project they're on revision two and it's by a guy named um joy castillo i think he's from the u.s but i'll definitely link to that in the show notes and i'll send you a i'll send you a link to this afterwards nice oh yeah i see it cool yeah, yeah it's a big purple circuit board and things like that it's it's a super cool project oh wow it's not even that big it looks
1: it looks somewhat sleek actually
0: yeah it's like the size of a of a Kindle, really? Like I think it's yeah. like, it's a 4.2 inch e paper display, so it's actually maybe the size of like the original Kindles. Uh, oh my god! Yeah,
1: and... I, I I thought this would look a lot worse than it actually is, but it looks really <laughs> good. It looks really good.
0: Yeah, but yeah, it's a super cool project, and I'm I'm interested. He makes a couple really cool things, and I've talked to him on Twitter a couple times. But yeah, the ability to like just manufacture this stuff as a hobbyist now is super cool like one of the one of my big inspirations was there's a guy on twitter called arturo 182 and he started building stuff that's just production quality like he's essentially one of the projects that he's done i have to look and find it but he's he's re-implemented essentially like a blackberry um, oh wow and
1: oh that's a person who prints the uh keyboards and stuff right
0: yeah. So, I mean, like yeah. this is my, the, the board on the one side. So this is the keyboard featherwing, and he's even done like manufacturing design to make physical cases and stuff for it. So like, it's really getting to the point where like one person with 3d printing and circuit board design and software development, can build essentially what it used to take, you know, a multiple person team to do where now just yeah. like with open source and tooling and things like that, it's become incredibly accessible for like one person to really, or a small team to really ship this in a reasonable amount of like time and effort, which is awesome to see that from the software <laughs> world. Cause that's been like the reality of open source for a number of years now, but seeing that getting into like mechanical and electrical design has been super exciting for me. Cause now all of my hobbies <laughs> are lighting up like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Amazing. Oh, that's
1: so cool. Like, I, I wonder what this, like, what, what sort of the, the end point for this will be eventually. Just really good tools. Is that it? I
0: don't know. Like, it's, it's. I mean, what happened with software when you had ability to iterate faster and ability for, like, individuals to really, like, try and prototype and iterate? Like, when you could make a, a website in a weekend or something like that and really iterate on it and figure it out, like, I mean, you can see how, like, quickly that pushed Software development and things like that, and I'm I'm really mm. excited, especially in like embedded and hardware development, which has been um, traditionally a much slower moving industry because it cost money to compile. Basically, like yeah, it used to be that like yeah, making five circuit boards cost you five hundred bucks and it took three weeks to show up, and now it takes like a week to show up and it costs you fifty bucks. And like yeah, 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 just the difference in that is is really huge cuz like you know i mean software developers complain about iteration cycle times <laughs> a ton because like they're like i'm so much more productive when i can get immediate feedback and if your feedback goes yeah. from being like 3 weeks to like a week or like maybe you only do two or three hardware spins because it's too expensive to do more than that but if you could make eight like think about how much faster and and better you could make your hardware and that's super cool to see
1: yeah 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 amazing Oh, by the way, speaking of like tiny hardware projects, what what do you think the Glasgow controller thing?
0: Oh, I backed it. I've been following that for like two years. Okay. I've been I, I I ordered one. So Glasgow's. I think this is now the third chat in a row where I've talked about White Cork, but White Cork on, <laughs> uh, is, is like the original designer of Glasgow and. I'm super excited about it. Like I've been meaning to get back into like FPGA design and stuff like that. And I'm mm. really excited to do it with Glasgow because it's been like 10 years. So getting back in through like a Python style interface is super cool. And the ability to just like talk to anything is, is such a superpower when it co- it is like, it's like the hardware equivalent of Wireshark. If like, oh, wow. if I could make that kind of analogy of like, just the ability to see everything that's going on is so <laughs> super cool. Amazing. Yeah. I, I was looking at the
1: controller and I was like, okay, cool. So here's a thing and here's like a overvoltage protector. Here's another thing with another protector and another thing with two protectors. I'm like, whoa. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. The the goal was, I I love that White Cork said the goal was like, it should be able to connect to anything built in the last 30 years. And like, wow. it should be safe to connect it to anything in the last 30 years, which means like, I know she's done a bunch of stuff where she's like, hooked it up to a floppy drive and read the, like the raw analog signals and was able to do stuff like um recover corrupted floppies because like floppies are magnetic, which means over time they sort of like lose their charge and yeah. they eventually fade to the point where like the digital electronics that used to read them would just read errors. Basically, they wouldn't read the the actual digital signal that's supposed to be there. But a lot of these floppy drives have the ability to read the raw analog magnetic values which means if you can read those raw values and interpret them often with a little bit of error correction, you can still do data recovery. And she was able to like get it totally able to read floppy drives. And like from what she plugged into a bunch of different computers and they all said like no data here. And she was able to get like 98% data recovery by reading the raw signals and like figuring out the sync uh, things like that. And so it's been like really, really awesome to watch her do stuff because it's just, especially as, as protocols and stuff like that stop being popular it's become super hard to talk to stuff like if you look at like software formats that were written 18 years ago and trying to find a program that still runs today that can read that database or read that save file or still talk to this program even in software that's getting like reasonably hard and hardware is exactly the same thing but Also, there's no documentation anywhere. And if you get it wrong, you destroy the one copy of the hardware that you have in the world. So like the stakes are high when it comes to hardware, especially when you only have like one working system left. And like, you can't just copy the data in like multiple safe places and try again and again and again. If you accidentally tell it to wipe the drive, you're done. Like that that was the only copy of the hardware and you've now made it catch fire. So like the stakes can definitely be high. So I'm super excited of, of what's possible with that. Amazing. Cool. Okay. Well, I think we're at the end of the first, I think we're at the end of the hour. And uh, so we should probably wrap up before I, before I let you go, is there anything that you want people to look at any project that you're working on, something you want to plug, something you want people to share or follow or look at? Uh, no, I'm on vacation.
1: I, you know, I I would highly (laughs) recommend people do
0: the same. (laughs) This, this won't go out for like, uh, two months probably. So it'll be a little bit. You know what?
1: Uh, people should take more vacation, uh, take a break, take a weekend off, don't work on projects, take a nap, eat breakfast, order in pet your cats. I don't know. Take it easy. Like two months from now, pandemic will likely still be here. Uh, so, you know, take it easy.
0: Like that. that is my all favorite right. thing to plug is plug relaxation
1: yeah i should you know uh do do, do as i say not not as i do um.
0: <laughs> all right uh well uh awesome to talk to you as always i'm super excited to talk to you again soon and uh enjoy yeah for the sure. rest of your day
1: okay right. thanks
0: see ya.